Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 218 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist, and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice where together with my colleagues, we provide advice and assistance to both employers and employees on all aspects of employment law. I wanted to share with you a quick update about my firm, Real Employment or Advice, because we have reached our 10-year anniversary. So it's 10 years ago in November 2023 that I set up Real Employment or Advice. So back in November 2013, it was just me working from my home office. And since then, We've grown to a firm of eight staff um, and we provide advice to businesses and individuals all over the UK. So we've been celebrating here at Real Employment or Advice and we will of course continue to bring all of the great advice, assistance, free resources, this podcast and everything else we're doing for our customers and clients, hopefully well into the future. So I just wanted to share a bit of an update about the firm. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be talking about sexual harassment and impending changes to the law, as well as a bit of a reminder about the law around sexual harassment as it currently stands. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. Now, as I was saying, I'm going to be covering off sexual harassment in this podcast. So the starting point really is going back to what the law says about sexual harassment. That's covered by the Equality Act 2010. And within the Equality Act, it says that sexual harassment occurs where both A, engages in unwanted conduct of a sexual nature, and the conduct has the purpose or effect of either violating B's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, or offensive environment for B. So in order for it to be sexual harassment, it has to be both unwanted conduct of a sexual nature and have the purpose of effect, purpose or effects, should I say, of violating the dignity or creating one of those situations. And it's been around, as we know, for quite some time. And most recently, the law around sexual harassment has been highlighted by the Me Too movement, which in some ways has led to this change in the law that I'm going to be talking about. But it has been around for the last 13 years. And of course, there have been a number of cases around sexual harassment. And there are lots of things that have come out from the case law that follows on from the definition or enhances the definition contained within the Equality Act. But when you're really thinking about sexual harassment, that's what you need to look at. Now, there are a few things that I would highlight in relation to the law around sexual harassment and things that have developed. And that is obviously a person can be sexually harassed by someone of the same or a different sex. It doesn't matter. There's no there's no reference in the definition to that being someone of the same sex. And it is any unwanted verbal, non-verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature would constitute sexual harassment if it has the effect of violating somebody's dignity. 
or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading environment, etc. A popular misconception or misunderstanding about sexual harassment is that a single incident can be enough to constitute harassment. Quite often people think it has to be a number of actions or conduct in order to be harassment, but actually what the law has said and what's come out of it, the case law, is that a single incident is enough if it meets that definition. Another point which is often brought up, particularly by people who are defending allegations of sexual harassment against them, is that there is no need for the victim to have made it clear to the perpetrator that their conduct is unwanted in order for it to constitute harassment. So often people will say in their defence, well they didn't say anything about it, they haven't told me that they don't want me to do this, they haven't made it clear that the conduct is unwanted and there is no requirement for the victim to do so in order for it to meet that definition of being unwanted. And then following on from this is another key point, which is that the fact that the employee has put up with the conduct for several months or years doesn't mean that it's not unwanted. So again, a defence that's often put forward is, how can it be unwanted? Because they haven't said anything about it. I've been doing it for ages, or it's been going on for a long time, or they're alleging it's been going on for a long time, but they haven't said anything. So the mere fact that they haven't mentioned it or said anything and the conduct's been going on for some time, doesn't mean that it can't be unwanted. And another point that's often brought up in people's defences is that they will often say the employee who is the victim, who has raised the allegations of sexual harassment, has been involved in the banter or has in some way been involved in discussions of a sexual nature, for example, or has been the instigator even of conversations or banter as people often call it that isn't enough to say that it isn't unwanted or that it doesn't meet the definition of sexual harassment the fact that somebody might have gone along with things or been involved in discussions as a method of coping with what's happening is often the case and so it's no defence. It doesn't mean that it's not sexual harassment if somebody has been involved in those conversations or involved in, as what some people call it, as banter in some way or another. Now, what constitute conduct of a sexual nature? We can probably think, using our own common sense of some things, but helpfully, the Equality and Human Rights Commission have set out some examples of what constitutes conduct of a sexual nature. And this can include behaviours such as sexual comments or jokes, displaying sexually graphic pictures, posters or photos, suggestive looks, staring, leering, propositions and sexual advances, making promises in return for sexual favours, sexual gestures, um, intrusive questions about a person's private or sex life, or somebody discussing their own sex life could be conduct of a sexual nature. Obviously sexual posts or contact on social media, spreading rumours of of a sexual nature about somebody, sending sexually explicit emails or text messages and unwelcome touching, hugging, massaging or kissing. So it could be unwelcome touching could constitute 
sexual harassment. Now, when it comes to bringing claims for sexual harassment, a claim could be brought in the employment tribunal against both the employer and the individual perpetrator of the sexual harassment and employees, workers, job applicants or even self-employed persons or consultants can bring a claim for sexual harassment under the Equality Act. Individuals might also be able to bring a claim the civil courts or for personal injury against both the employer or the individual perpetrator. And if they are successful in their claims for sexual harassment under the Equality Act, compensation could be for injury to feelings and also for any financial loss suffered because of the harassment. And what's important for employers to note in relation to this is that compensation claims are uncapped. So compensation could be quite high in relation to the compensation for injury to feelings, particularly if it's serious uh, sexual harassment or it's been going on for a long period of time. And no doubt you would have heard of some cases in the news where large awards of compensation have been given to individuals who have made claims for sexual harassment. Now, going over the law here is important, but the reason why I'm bringing up now is because there has been a change to the law in relation to sexual harassment. So the Worker Protection Amendment of Equality Act Act 2023 will come into force in October of 2024. And this follows uh, various discussions and consultations in relation to the law around sexual harassment and trying to essentially tighten up and enhance the protections of individuals in relation to sexual harassment. Again, following some high-profile cases and, of course, the Me Too movement. That's why this has been changed. Now, the key point that you need to note as employers and employees is that under the new legislation, employers will have a legal duty to take reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. Now, obviously, if sexual harassment takes place, employers can be liable for the conduct of their employees in relation to that. But employers now have this obligation to essentially take proactive steps to try to prevent and protect staff from sexual harassment. So what it means is employers need to look at and be proactive about sexual harassment. And if employers don't do that, then if a claim is brought against an employer by an individual for sexual harassment under the Equality Act and they are successful, the compensation awarded can be increased by up to 25% if the employer has failed to take reasonable preventative steps. So much like with the ACAS Code of Practice, if an employer fails to follow that, their compensation for the individual employee, if they're successful with the claim, can be increased by up to 25%. It's very similar in relation to sexual harassment. So there's no standalone claim that an employee can bring against their employer for not taking preventative steps. But if they are sexually harassed and the employer hasn't done anything to try to prevent that, then there would be an increase in compensation. So it is important that employers look at this and take it seriously. The other thing about it, which I expect will come out from 
case law in the future is that when looking at claims for sexual harassment, employment tribunals will look to see what steps employers have been taking and will potentially take that into consideration in relation to the award of compensation. But certainly, as I say, there would be an increase if there has been no steps taken at all. Now, what constitutes reasonable steps and what employers need to do will, of course, come out in case law. And there is going to be some guidance, some ACAS guidance on this for employers to give some examples. But ultimately, when it comes to looking at what's reasonable, will depend on the circumstances of the employer and the size, um, resources, and that sort of thing. And of course, not every step will be reasonable for every employer to take. My recommendation in relation to this and for employers is to look at it from a risk-based approach. So undertake a risk assessment in relation to what are the risk factors for sexual harassment taking place within your organisation. And then working from that risk assessment to see what you need to do to mitigate that risk in exactly the same way as you would with any other risk in your organization to employees, so for health and safety, those sorts of things. So looking at what is the risk and then how can we reduce that risk? And I think if you can show that you've done that and then taken those reasonable steps where you can to reduce that risk, it will assist you if you are finding yourself defending your claim in the employment tribunal. And one of the first things, absolutely, without doubt, you would need to do, and I think this would just be a standard for all employers, would be to have a look at your handbook or policies and make sure that you have an anti-harassment policy in your handbook. So making sure that it's clear for all employees what harassment is, what sexual harassment is and what the procedure is for reporting it and obviously making it clear that it's not something that you will condone and it constitutes serious misconduct. So as a very minimum, employers will need to have a policy setting out their position in relation to it so that could be communicated to um, employees. And once that policy is in place or updated, again, then you need to make sure that is sent to all employees or made available to all employees to read and they're signposted to it. You can go one step further and again I think this would be a reasonable step for employers to take which is to get a signed declaration or some kind of um, confirmation that employees have read that policy. Then the next thing would be to have a look at what training managers and HR have in relation to sexual harassment. So what training do you have in place, if any? What is the understanding of the key people in your organisation about preventative measures and your position on sexual harassment? So absolutely managers, HR, those people who are in positions of authority need to understand how to identify, recognise and prevent sexual harassment as a minimum. I actually think there should also be some kind of basic training for all employees in order to understand the types of behaviour that are considered to be harassment, highlighting the things I was saying earlier about the um, definition and the case law, so making sure people understand that a single one-off incident could constitute harassment, and also what they may consider to be harmless banter 
uh, could be offensive to somebody else. So as a very minimum, I think there should be something in place for all employees. And I think if you do this, you have a policy that's clearly communicated. You train your managers um, to understand, to prevent and to detect sexual harassment. And then you have some training in place for all staff so they understand the basics about sexual harassment and what your position is on it then I think you will have looked at taking all reasonable steps again look at your own organization from a risk-based approach what are the risks where do they come from how are you going to mitigate those and you might come up with some other reasonable steps but as a very least I think those are the three things that employers need to be looking at and doing in advance of the change in the law. And aside from the legal risk we're talking about here, it's important for employers to recognise that actually preventing sexual harassment and having an organisation which doesn't tolerate these types of behaviour is really important for your reputation, both with uh, your existing employees, with future potential employees and with customers and the wider community within which you operate. So employers should be taking a responsible position in relation to this in any event. But what this change in the law does is does prompt you to really think about it and put those steps in place. Now, what should you do if somebody makes a complaint of sexual harassment? Well, it's very important that you take every complaint seriously, that you don't just dismiss things offhand, that they are investigated and looked into in an appropriate way. Again, you're just not only saving yourself from the potential for legal risk, but you're also making sure that you're not putting other employees at risk and you're maintaining your business reputation, both with employees and in the wider community of your customers. Now, we at Real Employment Law Advice will be putting together some training for managers in the new year. We're going to be delivering this in some in-person training and then some online training as well. And we're also developing a program for employees. So a simple training program that takes a short amount of time that you can give to all employees to complete in order to show that they have undertaken some training without having that one-to-one kind of face-to-face training. In our view, it will help to cover off your obligations in relation to taking reasonable steps. So if you'd like more information about any of the training or services we can offer in terms of getting your policies up together, giving you some guidance, undertaking risk assessments for you, then we'll be really happy to help. You can email me directly. My email is alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk. If you would like to be put on the list for more information about the sexual harassment training that we're going to be putting together for the new year, then please email my colleague Kathy. It's Kathy with a K, K A. T-H-Y at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk and she's collating a list of those employers who um, want to know more and will be in contact with you in the new year when we have further details about both the in-person training, the online training for managers and then the training that we're going to be setting up for individual employees. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it interesting and helpful and that you take some tips away from it and start implementing them within your organisation. I hope you have a fantastic two weeks. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you, 
that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.